Welcome to Water for Fighting, where we discuss the past, present, and future of water in Florida with the people who make it happen. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. This episode brought to you by my friends at Collins Land Services. When it comes to your disaster recovery and land management needs, you're looking for the perfect combination of competence, reliability, and affordability. That means you're looking for Collins Land Services. Check them out at www.collinslandservices.com. If you look at the guest list of this show, to this point at least, You'll have noticed that we have folks of varying backgrounds and political persuasions. The fact is, if you're involved in water and environmental issues in Florida, I want to talk with you. And when it comes to being on this show with me, I only have a few rules. Have a passion for the subject matter, a willingness to share your experience and expertise with others, and a willingness, most importantly, to be honest about your perspective and your motivations. And that's why I'm excited to be sitting with my friend, Ansley Tilly, today. She's not only one of the smartest people I get to work with, but her passion for environmental resources is obvious in every single thing that she does. Ansley's an engineer and director of alternative delivery solutions with Resource Environmental Solutions. We'll call him Res. And she has vast experience in both the public and private sectors, including stints with the South Florida Water Management District and the City of Palm Beach Gardens. I'm glad she's here to share her personal and professional story with us because I think younger folks out there entering the field or in the field can learn a lot from her and her career so far. Angela Tilly, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brett. I probably bring this up a lot, but part of your origin story is kind of what I consider to be one of the most Floridian things that one could one could do, which is not really be from Florida at all. And so... Let's start with where you were born, and then we'll probably walk it back a little bit from there. I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, and grew up in a town called Lawrenceville, Georgia, which at the time was not what it is today. Back then, it was we were one family on a very, very, very long street, and Lawrenceville grew up around us. We, it was in Gwinnett County, which was at the time one of the fastest growing counties in the country, hmm. uh, much like we see Polk County uh, experiencing today. And we, as a family, got to watch that community change. And it was born to Pam and Dan McGarrity, hmm. who came from some unique backgrounds themselves. And yeah, I mean, your, your parents seem to have, they shared kind of a, a certain thread, right, in their early lives, mm-hmm. and that they were both raised, in, which is really uncommon for back in those days, raised in single parent homes. Mm-hmm. One because of unfortunate because of death and the other because mm-hmm. of also unfortunate because of divorce. Talk about those those threads and how they kind of come together. Yeah, my parents had some unique backgrounds for sure. My my mother, Pam, was uh, the daughter of an Italian immigrant, Pasquale Cesare. Hmm. Uh, originally spelled C-E-C-E-R-E, eventually hmm. became C-E-C-E-R-I. And for those who know my daughter, she um, hmm. so Pasquale, who eventually, as his last name changed, so did his first name to Patrick Joseph. And that was a result of really his parents really struggling as they made as they came here and tried to make uh make ends meet uh they came as vitantonio and rosario and eventually as a result of really struggling and trying to assimilate to the cultures and being able to to just keep jobs became tony and rose and so tony and rose came from italy to pittsfield massachusetts 
And Pittsfield still remains the largest population of native Italian speakers in the really? country. It's a very unique population in the Berkshires. And so my, my grandfather, Patrick, Pasquale. Eventually, as he grew older, got a job with GE. GE moved him in HR and moved him to a little town called Rome, Georgia, in the northwest part of the state, where he and at the time he was married with my grandmother and had uh, and already had two children, my mother, Pam, and her brother, Stephen. And so they began to make their way through life as a new family in northwest Georgia. And he refused to speak Italian in the home. Mm. Um, He struggled mightily to effectively convince people that he knew what he was doing because his accent was so thick. So my mother never had the opportunity to learn Italian. He absolutely refused to to speak it. That said, you know, she grew up a, a, a very... Good life. Hmm. Unfortunately, he passed when when she was 11. And so she was raised by her mother, who eventually ended up going to become a nurse in hmm. order to take care of making ends meet across oh. across the household after after my grandfather died. So that that was the start of really on my mother's side. Hmm. You know, I'll call it the hard charge. It's it, it, it started early and, and it's kind of running through me. On my father's side, uh, again, you know, that was a result of divorce, mm-hmm. uh, the hard charge that, that started to run through the family. Uh, my grandmother and grandfather were both from the South, Guy and Marie. And Guy was a salesman for the Frisco Railroad. He, fro- mm-hmm. he sold railroad freight, freight space, and traveled a bunch. And they moved the family back and forth between Jacksonville and Atlanta multiple times. To a point where, at a certain point, my grandfather and my grandmother divorced. And at the time, they were in Jacksonville. Mm. My father was attending Terry Parker High School. Thought he was going to graduate from Terry Parker High School, and he did not. He ended up moving back to Atlanta and graduating from a Cross Keys High School in Atlanta. Just a Florida question, or Jacksonville question, maybe closer. Does Parker High School still exist? It does. Interesting. Which part of town is it? You know, I'm not sure. I've never actually been there. I do know it exists because before he died, he attended a high school reunion and it was apparently in the gym or something. I didn't, I, it, it just reminded me that we look back at our own histories and we see so much that's changed of where we've come from. And yeah. it goes even further, right? There's so much history in all of our families and, yeah. and that, that make us. And so his experience in life in Jacksonville, I think has, it, it lived through him for a very long time. While he remained in Atlanta with my mother, they all he ever wanted to do was give back to Florida. They, as a young married couple, had very little. Uh, they both worked their butts off. Um, my mother and father both started as teachers, uh, both attended the University of Georgia. They actually met on Daytona Beach in spring break. Really? <laughs> yes. Well, do you remember what year that was? I don't. I want to say it was in the 60s. I don't remember what year it was, though. So my mother was a beach bunny. And <laughs> my father was a strapping young man on the beach. Sure. And it was actually my uncle, my dad's brother, who introduced my mother to my father. And it was history after that. They actually vac- They actually were married in, in January of 1969. Okay. And they vacationed for their honeymoon in Daytona in a little roadside hotel motel and it was freezing and they actually left and came home early because it was just not much of a vacation it was too cold yeah but anyway since then my dad always he had always wanted to get back 
to Florida. While he loved Atlanta uh, and he had a, a lot of love for the state of Georgia, he was always yearning to get back here. Um, and eventually he did. How much of the the part, and it's funny, it's like I, I'm, I'm going through a lot of your, your biographical stuff and I see the, I see these things where I think sometimes we think that we're so unusual or so out of the ordinary. And then you find these kind of common threads, mm-hmm. you know, in, in family stories and half your family, you know, at least, you know, in birth is from the North and half from, from the South. And those two things combined, you know, give you your parents. And it was mm-hmm. the same with me You know, my dad's side. We're both from Philadelphia and a place called Norwalk, Ohio, which is somewhere near the lake, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, both my, my mom's side are from the South, mm-hmm. Jacksonville and Montgomery, Alabama. Mm-hmm. Did that kind of, did, did that dynamic, I mean, obviously it worked with your parents. It's like, but how did that work in terms of their marriage and then how that bleeds over? What parts bleed over is, I guess, the part that I'm curious about into you and and then eventually your, your brother's personalities in life. I would say that when my great grandfather moved the family to Rome, you know, he had two brothers, Frank and Dominic, and they all kind of went their own ways. And the family really on the on the sensory side started to it just really kind of broke up. So the the depth there in history is very, very short, Hmm. mostly because, you know, there's there weren't many of them that came that with that family, unless we you know, go to Italy and, and, you know, meet with that family there. So there's just not a lot of transfer of that cultural history in my brother and I. My father's side is far more influential in our in, in our being as, as people, frankly, just because we had a lot more engagement with them. Right. You know, we had family that was from North Georgia, the Dahlonega area. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of folks who know me really well, We'll tell you the the country mountain girl comes out sometimes <laughs> when I'm with some of that family, and we got a lo- we spent a lot of time with those folks growing up, just for the mere fact that they were closer, and there was just more there was more of a family vibe there, just because they 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 were people there, right? Um, right. The the accessory side it was just so small and so shallow in terms of people being sure. available. Sure. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, let's focus in on your parents mm-hmm. because they end up as like, uh, you know, to foreshadow the end of the story, which is they became quite successful. Mm-hmm. But the beginning of the story the, is not that right. No, they were very poor. Yeah. yeah. Talk about their early life together. And then and then kind of when little Ansley appears mm-hmm. and what that life was like, because it wasn't it wasn't always the way it ended up, was it? No. So, you know, both coming from single parent households, both moms working their butts off just to survive, keep food on the table. Both my parents knew that if they were going to do anything better with themselves, they they needed to set themselves up better. You know, the there just was nothing to start from except whatever they created. So as they, they both put themselves through school at the University of Georgia, my mother came out with an education degree and my father came out with a botany degree. Uh, both started teaching. Neither of them liked it. It just wasn't their cup of tea. And so uh, my father went to work for the Fulton County Department of Health, which if you don't know the 
Atlanta. That is predominantly almost the entire city of Atlanta in some outlying areas. And my mother went to work as a bank teller for Citizens and Southern Bank, which eventually after multiple mergers and acquisitions becomes Bank of America. Right. And so my mother and my father both stuck with those employers from day one. Wow. My mother worked her way up the ladder through from teller to branch manager to, you know, all the next steps beyond and eventually was asked to join the mergers and acquisitions team and became an executive vice president for Bank of America before she retired. Um, And my father continued with the county and eventually became the director of public uh, buildings and grounds, which was the precursor of natural resources. He was actually there during the Atlanta Olympics and developing some of the, the facilities for some of the activities like the archery and horseback riding and stuff. It was interesting. To kind of skip back to the other part, which is their early life together and yours. And it seems like, I mean, they were, it seemed like they were already always driven. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess, you know, mm-hmm. if you know you, yeah. one could have, one could have guessed that that would be the case. But those early days, you, you shared some personal stories with me. And, and I think they're, they're awesome. It's like, but one that stuck out in my mind was the milk story. So, and I mentioned my parents started out quite humbly. There were many weeks as a child where we would not eat, or weeks, months, we would not eat red meat because it cost too much. So we would, you know, live off other things. The other one that was a staple in our house is every Sunday, uh, my father would pull out the glass Tropicana jar, the big one where you used to be able to get an entire I'll call it the jug of orange juice. And he would save them. And he would pull down the box of powdered milk and he would make our milk for the week. Mm. And it was powdered milk. And I can still see this image in my head in the kitchen, a man shaking a big (laughs) jar of milk. He was making the milk. And I remember going later as, you know, you get older and go see your friends and visiting friends for dinner. And their parents would ask, would you like milk or water? for dinner. And I would always say milk. I loved milk. I couldn't get enough of it. They would pour a glass of milk from this plastic gallon. Mm. And I could not understand why their milk was so different looking than ours. And I would taste it and I didn't like it. (laughs) I thought it was terrible. And I thought, why does their milk taste so funny? And I remember telling my mom, mom, I, I don't know what's, why their milk is not so good. And she laughed and she said, Ainsley, you need to drink all the milk that you can at their house because that's the real stuff. <laughs> and I said, well, what's wrong with our milk? And she said, this, it's just, it's not the same, honey. It's just, we have to buy this kind because this is, this is our lot in life right now. And we're going to just be fine with it. And, and I didn't, it didn't phase me until much later that this was a decision my parents were trying to make to keep us moving in all the positive directions. And right. it was as little as choosing milk, right? Yeah. And it, it, you know, in the end, that's the, interest, the interesting part is not drinking powdered milk. The interesting part is the amount of work and sacrifice they put into their lives and poured into the lives of, yeah. of you and, and your brother. Mm-hmm. But let's, let's talk about you then and the the scope of, you know, of those times, those early days, what were you like as a kid? Oh, I love to play outside. I mean, I played the piano since I was, you know, a six-year-old and I'd sit there and stare and watch all my friends playing outside and I would beg to go, but no, the egg timer was on until it went off. I didn't get up. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was, I was highly disciplined. 
most of it not by choice at that age. <laughs> right. There was a lot of order in our house, and my parents accepted nothing less than straight A's. Hmm. And anything less than that was a complete disappointment. And I, I, I was not the kid who wanted to disappoint my parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was the, the fear of what would happen if I did. Not because they threatened me, not because I just had something in me that said, you don't disappoint. Right. And it's, it's how they, they built me, right? And they pushed me hard, but they also exposed me to why. Right. And the mm-hmm. why they pushed me as hard as they did, uh, a lot of it was they would explain, you know, this is how we how we were. Do you want to live like that? And but then there's these other opportunities and they would put them in front of me, not because they were opportunities for them, but they were opportunities they knew that at some point could be for me and my brother. And yeah. while they didn't have a lot of money, they any experience that came to town and I and I say experience because they weren't necessarily all the same, but anything that came to town was free, we went to. You know, there was a a time when if this Atlanta Symphony was playing and somewhere that was free, we went. Hmm. If the there was an exhibition that was of the arts or anything else, we went. And I and I, I think I shared this one with you that one of the most impressionable ones to me was an exhibition that came from Saudi Arabia. Uh, it came to the Atlanta Convention Center. And uh, my father said, we're going. And I said, what, what is Saudi Arabia, <laughs> right? I don't know. I was young. I don't think I was maybe 10. And he said, we're going. And he gave me a quick brief of where this place was in the world. Mm-hmm. And being a man who just wanted to get out and see the world, he was so excited that this exhibition was here. So we went. And mm-hmm. it was just me and my dad. And I was fascinated by all the different things in the culture and the the religion and just it was they had set up this mini mecca and Mm. it was gorgeous and i remember thinking i gotta go there one day i want to go see these places and these things and it was my dad who really instilled that sense of go Mm. go see it go do it but you can't do that if you don't find a way to make it happen Right. Uh, So the drive just they just kept pumping it into me. And so that was something that and it hasn't left me. Right. I I still want to go explore. I still want to be the adventurer as old and decrepit as I'm going to get. And I'm starting. But it's though that still sits in me. And it's something I am trying to to expose my daughter to. Yeah. And I mean, it features, you know, later on, you know, as you go out to the world and, and start a career, but I want to I want to talk, you know, kind of the that stage between being a little kid, your your parents exposing you to these really cool things, and then what that looked like, what the future in your mind looked like at the time, and I, I guess in my mind, I just call it the the Top Gun dream. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. Talk about what you wanted to do when you grew up. Yeah. So you know, you hear a lot of kids asking, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" And I want to be a a you know, sports person or whatever. And mine was always, I want to be an astronaut. Mm. I was fascinated. And of course, I was the child of the space shuttle era. I was fascinated with what we were doing. And they, in that era, we were talking about the Challenger. And this was, you know, it had blown up. 
right? And there was so yeah. much to learn from that. And But it didn't phase me. I thought, but look at what they were trying to do, hmm. where they were trying to go. What were they trying to learn? Um, and the whole space flight thing just, I was enthralled by it. And I knew that in order to become an astronaut, I studied. I tried to figure out what are the steps that each of these astronauts have taken? What types of positions are they sitting in in the space shuttle? There's the mission specialist. There's the pilot. There's the co-pilot. And what, what are the science they're doing on their up there? And I said, which one do I want to be? Right? And I wanted to be the pilot. And I had to figure out what was the path that each of these pilots took to get there. Yeah. Nine times out of 10, maybe even 10 times out of 10, they had come from a military background, quite often the Navy, and they had become test pilots or they were active pilots in the, the military before being transferred over to NASA. And most of them, not all of them, but many of them went to an academy. They mm -hmm. went to a military academy. I said, all right, that's what I got to do. That's what I got to do. <laughs> and I need to fly uh, fighter jets. And I this if, if I'm going to make this happen, I need to start now. Right. Yeah. And this was like late elementary school. Wow. That's crazy. I went to space camp. I went to anything that could expose me to flight. To I was I actually when in high school, I interned for an airplane mechanic just to kind of learn what are the inside mechanics and things and how do you make it work yeah. and just to understand more. But And so I, 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 I was striving to do everything that was necessary. I knew I had to make good grades. I knew I had to perform well on the SAT, ACT. I knew I had to have in great physical fitness. So I did everything I could and be well-rounded, right? They, the academies wanted folks who were well-rounded. And I knew that in my, what was small town at the time, Lawrenceville, Georgia, I may be sitting towards the top of my class in high school, but there were kids out there I'd never met that I knew if I was going to compete, I have to compete with people I don't know right. who come from high schools that were much bigger, much more competitive. And I knew I also needed to get engaged with, uh, I don't want to say politics, but start to know who my, who my legislators were, yeah. who my congressmen were. Because at some point I had to go get a congressional nomination, which I did. I was happy I got two of them. And I applied for moving into college. I applied for the Air Force Academy and the Naval Academy. And I ended up getting the nominations and I went for my physical fitness test. I passed the test for the Navy, did not pass the test for the Air Force. I could not do a pull-up despite trying my darndest and training. I was not made to do pull-ups, but that's okay. Uh <laughs> So I, I did not process through the Air Force Academy and accepted to the Naval Academy on a wait list. I did not have 20-20 vision. And at that time, they were organizing by, yeah. if you don't, if you're not perfect, right, you get, you get secondary dips. And eventually, I, I found that I did not make it. And it was a, it was a big blow. And I said, what in the world? You can't become an astronaut without going to an academy. And my parents said, well, you got backups, right? You got backups. So they weren't going to let me just put all my eggs in that basket. Mm -hmm. And I had applied to the University of Southern California, Vanderbilt University, Georgia Tech, and the University of Miami. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to get away from Atlanta. Right, <laughs> so right. I, I was accepted at all of them. And I eventually accepted a scholarship to the University of Miami mm -hmm. for Air Force and Merit. And so I, I went to Miami and busted my butt in their ROTC program. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Being as driven as you are, you were going to do well 
you know, in, in college, in ROTC, and you end up with a commission as mm-hmm. an officer in the Air Force. And then even with the disappointment mm-hmm. of missing out on the Air Force Academy, you, you had to have been proud, right? Mm-hmm. And you were the only one in the class in the end, because I know the end of this story, that was offered a pilot slot, yeah. which is what you wanted, yeah. and subsequently turn it down. Yeah, what I did. I, I I think I shook a couple apple trees on that one. My, I had, everyone knew I had been striving to get that pilot slot. And, you know, you, you kind of put in your ask the year before you graduate so that your command structure can start supporting that ask through the, through the ranks. Mm-hmm. And as I'm moving through that final year, I realized just how hard I'd worked for that engineering degree, two engineering degrees. And when they came out and they said, it's yours, I said, I was very disappointing. And I said, I don't want it. I have worked way too hard to get these degrees and Mm -hmm. I need to use them. There's so much that can be done with this. And they looked at me like, are you crazy? Nope. This doesn't happen to everybody, you know, and I, I understand. But I also knew having had some folks go through the program before who also had received pilot slots and come back and I've talked with that they weren't using their degrees at all. Right. And it was just a means to an end to the pilot slot, which was my plan. But I'd learned too much. I found out too much. I, you know, that whole explore, go figure it out. That's all that engineering is. It's go explore, figure it out, yeah. right? Solve it. And I loved it. And so I said, I can't, I can't do it. I got to I got to use this. My brain deserves this. <laughs> to use this. Let's take a quick break to talk about my friends at Collins Land Services. When I was at the Northwest Florida Water Management District in the wake of Hurricane Michael, the devastation to tens of thousands of acres of property the agency manages in the path of that storm was beyond belief. But thanks to the governor and legislature, our dedicated and professional staff, and our equally dedicated partners like Collins Land Services, we were able to begin the long, hard road to recovery. Collins Land Services made the forestry recovery process easier because they embraced the three legs of the stool one must possess to work effectively with me. Competency, reliability, and affordability. Collins is an American-owned and veteran-operated business that has a long resume of successful projects throughout Florida that go well beyond ordinary forestry services. Their experience with stormwater and other surface water maintenance, right-of-way services of all kinds, and they've proven their value with commercial and even residential clients as well. Get rid of the absentee contractors, cost overruns, and substandard performances. Contact Collins Land Services to find out how they can help solve your property challenges today. You can find them at www.collinslandservices.com. All right, let's get back to the conversation. Let me ask you about one part, and it's really, I think, it's just because it's, you know, it's a, a current issue, mm-hmm. is you did an internship mm-hmm. in Ukraine when yeah, when did. you were in, was it when you were in ROTC? It was while I was in ROTC. Mm-hmm. And you said that you spent a lot of time with some families there, mm-hmm. Did you stay in contact with them over the years? Do you know what their situation is like these days? Is it in the more dangerous places there of of late? I have I have not kept in t- contact with them. Most of the family we had a we had an interpreter with us, which thank God or else I might not have made it through. But they would they would do most of the speaking. So communicating in a pen pal form or any other way was a really big challenge. Those folks spoke zero English, which frankly was an interesting experience. Right, uh, you're living with a family who has cultural practices that are not the same as yours and it was it was eye-opening right just I had been to many places at that point in my life 
never to a place like Ukraine. It was a, the people were absolutely beautiful and kind and friendly, even though we couldn't communicate directly with each other. Mm-hmm. And as an aside, I was, I wasn't there just, you know, I was working in the embassy at the time. Sure. So the, but the, the people were so kind, but many of them, the reason that they allowed us to live there is they were looking for ways to make money, right? Mm-hmm. And they were looking for ways to supplement incomes that they struggled to get. So they would effectively get paid to allow us to live there, which was fine. They took care of us. They were kind. They would guide us. And I, I did feel really, really bad for a few of them. Um, there was a very old lady who had lost her husband. She had a one-bedroom apartment. She gave up her bedroom for us. And she slept on the couch. And it was all I could do is, no, you can't sleep on the couch. Hmm. This is not right. You're going to sleep in your bed. And she refused. Wow. She absolutely refused. I also found it interesting. They all grew cucumbers and tomatoes. That was like a staple. Uh, but they they were in a time after they had turned into a relatively capitalistic society. M- uh, most of the families that we knew were trying to figure out what that be- meant to them. Like, yeah. how do I make money? I've right. been a chairmaker my whole life, despite having been trained to be, I don't know, an, an engineer. I don't know how to be an engineer anymore. I know how to make chairs because I was told growing up, that's what I'm going to do. You're in that society. I was going to make chairs. Wow. So what you found was this very big dichotomy between the older generations, which struggled to acclimate to this new society and the newer generation, the younger generation loving it because the capitalism was real now and they were figuring out how to make money Mm -hmm. Uh, so it was really really interesting to see just the change and and i suspect most of them were kiev and lviv odessa that there are some who are probably in different places now yeah what year was that when you were in in ukraine uh i want to say it was oh two okay yeah so early early years yeah yeah for Mm -hmm. sure Talk about what you did. What was your job when you, you when you actually were in the Air Force proper as a as a proper officer? I was a civil engineer. I worked in what they call a prime beef squadron at Langley Air Force Base in Southeast Virginia, and it's the first fighter wing. Ironically, it is the home of the one of the premier F-15 fighter squadrons, or was, the F-22 demo program, as well as the F-15 demo program. So I was reminded daily <laughs> about the pilot <laughs> slot that I did not take. Is that the Thunderbirds, the demonstration team? No, the... That, they're the 16th or the 18th. I don't remember where they're stationed out of. I want to say they're out west. But gotcha. this is this was just the, this was right as the F-22 was coming out. Right. And I my office was on the, the end of the flight line. And every day you would come out and you effectively were watching an air show. And it was, I mean, it was magnificent. Just the total sound and the power, that whole sound of freedom is real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I was reminded daily uh, as a civil engineer, but I was really, really pleased to be able to know that I had a wonderful commander and he made sure that we were known as a, as a support group that made things happen. And so as a prime beef member, you're in base development, mm-hmm. you're in base maintenance. So it's a very 
expeditionary development of bases. So it was cool. It was cool. But I knew that, you know, if, if I really wanted to to do some other things, I needed to get beyond base development. Right. Was there ever, as you're sitting at the end of the flight line, just a tiny pinch of, of regret in terms of not being one flying the F-22? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, like I, there's a there's a couple of you know stories out there about the women who were the first F twenty two pilots, and I'm like, that's my year group. It could have been me. But do I do I think I made the wrong decision? No, not at all. It seems like yeah, and that's the part the you know the story I want to get to next, and it, it it and it may seem like it was the transition that you ended up making was easier given. Mm-hmm. Given their the career choice at that part, and, and and I don't I don't like picking at scabs. Like my intention is not necessarily to be the mm-hmm. Barbara Walters of environmental <laughs> podcasts, but often it's the hardest moments in people's lives that that I find the most in what actually makes people tick. And and you left the Air Force before you were actually ready, but your family needed you, and especially your mom and your brother. You know, how how much younger was your brother than than you? Seven years. Yeah, yeah, and you had to you had to leave because your mom was not was not doing doing well, and so that's I means so that's in the end how you end up in back yeah, in Florida, right? Totally. Yeah, I felt like my career was starting and ending about at the same time in the Air Force, and yeah. I, I really wasn't in terribly long until I found out that my mother had terminal cancer. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. I mean, take take your time. <clears throat> It was a tough time. I um I married young. I married uh, to another Air Force uh, officer. Huh. Nine years my senior. Uh, maybe not the smartest move In trouble. when you're 22, yeah. uh, 24, or whatever I was at the time. And so he was in Afghanistan. We were both stationed at Langley. And the Air Force has, or at the time, had what they called uh, expeditionary operating forces. And you would never have the entire base deployed at the same time. They would have a rotation schedule. So six months on, six months off. And if you were married or you had a family, they always kept one of the parents at home so that there was always, you know, a family member at home. And so he was out in Afghanistan and I was due to go. And I found out during that time that my mother was sick. My father had always been a bit of a heavy drinker and kind of took a turn for the worse. Yeah. Let's talk about the utilitarian aspect of it then, which is you've got to figure out how to be a civilian because at this point you really hadn't, right? You're in college. You spend your years in college. The Air Force tell you, you know, what to think, what to do, what you're doing during the summer. You're going to Ukraine and you're at Air Force bases and you're doing, doing awesome things. Convert that into, to your, to your transition to your private sector work. Oh, yeah. Let's set aside the, you know, I know. The fun I know. stuff. <laughs> for just, a, for at least a, at least yeah. a bit. Uh, leaving the Air Force was hard, obviously. But starting to be exposed, I, my first my first gig outside of the Air Force with, with, was with uh, PBS and J, Post Buckley, Shoe and Jernigan. You'll probably remember them. And so I worked for an office in Virginia and got to work on some really unique projects the petersburg battlefield and the restoration of that mm-hmm. um we worked on strangely enough um a, a usda facility in wisconsin which was a dairy i'll say a dairy test facility where they were ironically measuring what 
cows produced, not just milk. <laughs> um, <laughs> not just milk this time. Milk stories back. So, and I was a part of the land development team in trying to design how we were going to move what the cows produced effectively to where they did it, to where it needed to be tested. So, I mean, I had some really interesting projects that came out of that. But at a certain point, my I got a call and I, and I left because my, my parents needed me. My brother was seven years younger, yeah. was trying to get through high school. He was a senior. And so I ended up getting a call one day from my dad saying, you got to come home. Yeah. I need you now. And so I went and took care of my parents and my brother for about, I don't know, four or five months mm-hmm. until my mother passed. And I uh, got my brother off to University of North Florida. Okay. Yeah. My parents had moved to West Palm eventually while I was in college. And they, my dad got his dream. He got to move back to Florida. And we got my brother off to North Florida. Uh, and, you know, I my, my private sector career began. And at that point, after I had come back and, and, you know, come back to Virginia after all of that activity... I, I knew at some point I needed to get back to Florida too. And so my ex-husband came back from Afghanistan. He was, he only had a few more years before he was due to retire. Mm-hmm. And I said, listen, at that time, we're, we're moving, we're going home. His family was also from South Florida. And so when he did, he, uh, I said, the first one of us that gets a job, we're going. <laughs> right. <laughs> as long as it's a job that makes sense, we're going. Yeah. By that time I'd had a daughter. She needed grandparents, and so my ex-husband retired, uh, got his nursing degree. My daughter and I left about eight months before he moved Mm -hmm. because I got a job at the city of Palm Beach Gardens. Mm -hmm. I had never held a municipal job in my life, but I looked at it as this is a career-broadening opportunity, and it actually exposed me to far more than I ever thought it would from a career perspective. And I use, frankly, a lot of what I learned at the gardens today. And that is, I was responsible for all of the development compliance. I was responsible for the building department and understanding all of the codes that come and go through municipal development, the whole Florida government process and understanding that started there. Yeah. Previously, I'd worked for the feds. After I came back from Florida to Virginia, I ended up taking a position with Mortensen Construction Company. Mm-hmm. And Mortensen was dedicated to all federal work in that region. I did a lot of work for the Navy. For We did some work for the Army at the time. Uh, and Mortensen called me at some point and said, listen, federal work is drying up. We have a job for you in Minneapolis. <laughs> <laughs> Again, my husband had not yet retired from the Air Force. And I said, I'm going to have to think about that one, yeah. knowing that our goal was to get back to Florida, yeah. not anywhere. Slightly, slightly wrong direction. <laughs> it was absolutely wrong direction. And I had spent two months in Minneapolis, Minneapolis with Mortensen on a project controls and scheduling programming training, which all PMs in the company were required to, to take, which I still, again, use today. Nice. Yeah, it was fantastic training. And so... Eventually, they said, well, if you don't come, we don't have work for you here. And I said, okay, I understand. And Challenge accepted. Challenge accepted. And then I was like, okay, what am I going to do now? And through the, the last Navy job that we worked on, 
the NAFAC, Naval Facilities Command, mm. in Norfolk kept knocking on my door. Please come work for us. Please come work for us. And I said, I don't, I don't want to be a federal employee. I really don't. I'm really, I'm learning a lot. I enjoy the private sector. I'm still serving because every job has been one about service. And I can do it here. And I can do it. And I feel like I've got some, some more freedom to be able to, to do this work. Yeah. And... But after the call of, well, you know, it's Minneapolis or bust, right? I said, you know, maybe that Navy job's not so bad. Yeah. And so I called them and they said, that's great because we're developing a brand new group. Okay. And they were developing the first of what they called their integrated project delivery teams. And I was part of a group of folks who developed this brand new program that effectively was supposed to be a program that got built out of a bunch of bracked bases. Mm-hmm. And the folks who were supposed to come... Tell people what that means. Oh, There's yeah. some people that don't know what that um, means. So to a bracked base is a, a base that falls under the base realignment and closure program that the DOD goes through sometimes. Uh, it's very, very political. Yeah. It affects communities in very, very big ways. Many of them are quite often bases that are being closed because mission changes mm-hmm. and the military no longer needs that asset and or you know whether it's a ship or a uh, an airplane that they're no longer supporting in the fleet so they'll close that base and quite often those bases have been there a very long time yeah and those people have worked there quite often a very long time and they are rooted in those communities and shutting down those bases is tough yeah. it's tough on those communities so the folks who were bracked didn't come we had maybe two out of like 100 people that, that actually showed up. The rest of them either quit, retired, what have you. Mm-hmm. We built this group called the New England IPT, Integrated Project Delivery Team. And it effectively became a big group of engineers, scientists, architects, the whole multidiscipline firm effectively yeah. inside a Navy command. And we were all private sector employees. And that had decided to come join this team. So we effectively got to recruit from outside whoever I wanted. And with a couple other folks, we developed this program. And it was fantastic. Mm. We developed some really unique facilities and had a lot of unique issues to overcome in most of these places. For the mere fact, we worked across, gosh, I don't even know how many states. I didn't count them. But it's effectively (laughs) Virginia through Maine as far west as western Pennsylvania. So the whole mid-Atlantic New England region. Okay. Who's your Who's your boss under those circumstances? Is it some Is it some sort of extended wing commander? Is it base commander? Who is Who is the boss that that civilian group answers to? Yeah, uh, that civilian group. I, I I'll try and you know put it in private sector terms. Was like a sub headquarters, mm-hmm. right? So it was more corporate-y than the their base public works groups. So we were developing. Um, the big projects, whereas the public or the public works groups at the local base level were developing some of the smaller keep things going. Understood. Right. Regular job, regular day to day things. So at my level, it was there was a there were there was one main chief of the group, New England IPT, uh, and he reported to the, the headquarters commander. So it was it was a really unique group. We won several design awards for the work we did. So and just everything was just giant and different so let me add one one more step 
before we get to where you are today, because I think people will recognize a pattern. I certainly do in terms of this culmination of skills and experiences that lead you to, to who you are today professionally. Mm-hmm. And that's the coming back down South again, terrible reasons, you know, mm-hmm. for it. But this time you're, you're with your brother rather mm-hmm. than having to take care of him. But you, in the midst of that, you end up coming back to Florida you end up working at the Palm Beach Gardens, but also then the South Florida Water Management District. Yes. Talk about that yeah. transition and then your work at South Florida, because that's important. Yeah. So the city of Palm Beach Gardens, like much of Palm Beach County at that time and, and still is, was was starting to take off and grow some more, right? It was starting to be less of a sleepy county and started to, you started to get some of the drive that you see in, in Broward County. And the city had come into determining they needed to expand a lot of their facilities and a lot of the the work that they were doing to serve their citizens. And they had a new capital program that they wanted to jump off. Knowing my background, they asked if I would run that capital program. And I said, sure. And I had to start creating it from scratch, which I had done once before, but that's okay. Uh, but the difference here was, you know, the capital program I was running with the Naval Facilities Group, I was responsible for the entire New England Navy Reserves Marine Corps Reserve Program. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was big, right? I was used to a lot of very complex, unique regulatory nightmares that, you know, honestly, I was a little bored with the capital program that we were developing mm-hmm. at, at Gardens. No less rewarding from a service perspective you're still sitting serving a lot of citizens to provide better services but at the end of the day the projects were just not as exciting to me you know I'd already had all these wild and crazy projects and I really kind of yearned for that again yeah and I saw the South Florida Water Management District had an ad for the I believe was the engineering bureau chief open and I said well shoot they do some pretty cool stuff I would like to maybe go work there. And so I applied and I got an interview and it was an interview panel. It was all of the executives and it was a... Say their names. I think if people are there, I think if you do what we do for a living, you know who these folks yeah. are. So. Yeah, I'm sure most folks know who these people are. So at the time it was John Mitnick. Uh, he had, I think, just been promoted to um, chief engineer. Um, we had Ernie Marks, who was the director of Everglades Policy at the time, Terry Bates, director of science, Joel Arietta, who mm. I believe was director of, I'm going to say it's operations. And I think that was all of them. I feel like I'm missing someone, but I think that was all of them. So anyway, we sat down to have what I was ready for, <laughs> an hour conversation at best, right? Interview, ask the questions, answer the questions, everybody moves on to the next steps. And it was the longest interview of my life. And the reason for that was we had entered into what was the the first most recent blue-green algae episode. Okay. I want to say it was, what, 2015-16. Yeah. And they were being stopped about every 25, 30 minutes by Pete Antonacci, who was the ED at the time. And he would pop his head in, he'd say, I need answers from you. And he'd point to one of them and they would, okay. So they would get up, (laughs) sorry, we've got to stop the interview for a second. No problem, no problem at all. So this had happened a couple of times and I felt really bad for these folks. Like they've got, they clearly have something going on and they need to do it. (laughs) Um, 
hey, do you want to reschedule this? I'm totally okay with it. No, we want to finish. Okay. So we finished two and a half hours later. And it was it was a wonderful interview, actually, because it was, you know, effectively, you're just starting to have a real conversation when you sit in a room with three other people for yeah. two hours, you can't just stare at each other. Uh, and it was great. So I got to learn a little more about them. And they got to obviously learn a little bit more about me. Um, I didn't get the job. And I said, Okay, I move on, see what happens next, see if I go anywhere. Maybe I just keep doing what I'm doing. And I got a call about a month later from Ernie Marks. And he said, Hey, I, you know, I really enjoyed your interview. I think you ought to apply for this job that we've got out. And I'm like, what? A section administrator for the Northern Everglades at the mm. time. I said, Hey, I, I think you got the wrong person. I don't know anything about that. And he said, I think you do. I said, I'm not so sure. But thank you. I appreciate it. And I'm sure I'll think about it. And I went home and I talked to my husband. I'm like, I don't this doesn't make sense. I want that engineering job. Yeah. He said, well, that engineering job's filled, Ansley. You can't have that one. And I said, no, I understand that. I don't necessarily have to have that one, I guess. I said, I, I'm, I'm an engineer. I want to be in the engineering job. And so I, I just kind of let it go. And he called me again. Hey, I really, really think you should think about this. And I, you know, I don't know, man. This is, that's not my wheelhouse. And he said, it is your wheelhouse. And I said, okay, like, well, you know me for two and a half hours. All right. <laughs> and I went home again and I told my husband, he said, Ansley, why don't you think you can do that job? My husband, the voice of reason, mm -hmm. my current husband. And I said, well, because that's not what I do. He said, well, somebody else thinks it's what you do. So you sold yourself to be something you aren't? And I said, well, no, <laughs> I wouldn't do that. And he said, well, then you, you do know what you're doing. You do know what this man thinks yeah. you should know. I, and I think anyone like my myself, anyone listening, Ernie Marks, who is a very smart guy and a good guy. A wonderful man. You know, and then and then your husband all kind of sees where, you know, what I, what I think you end up recognizing is that... Um, that you, in the end, like you're the culmination of a bunch of things, right? Yeah. And so South Florida Water Management District is like the proving ground for not just engineers, but it's like big time project management. Yeah. And that must have been what he, you know, what he was seeing. Mm -hmm. And so you end up saying yes, right? I did. I did. And I thought, man, this is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and there were probably other people who thought the same thing, but... But it worked though, right? It worked. And I I came in and I worked under Ava Velas, and she was the bureau chief of the Everglades at the time for state policy. And all I did was shut up and listen. And I read anything in everything that I could find mm. to get myself up to speed to where I knew I needed to be because if I didn't, that job would eat you alive. Yeah. And, and I, I guess Ernie saw that I would do that. Mm -hmm. And I studied my butt off to learn the system. I mean, anybody who's been in the South Florida system knows there's a lot just from a mechanics position yeah. of how things move. I learned how the, the system worked. I asked probably more questions than Ava could handle and I shouldn't say could handle, that she wanted to answer because <laughs> she could handle them all. And she was gracious enough to to answer them. And I wasn't afraid to to expose my vulnerabilities and what I didn't know because I know if I, there, there's nothing to hide. You can't hide that. Right. And so I, 
I said, look, I know I don't know this. I need to know this. Just point me in the right direction and I'm going to learn it. And I did. And it's, and it's turned into a true passion, right? The system as a whole, when I think about it as an engineer, is just, it's a behemoth, right? Mm. But the, if its ability to function as well as it does with as many, I'll say, gates and pumps and weirs and just mechanical movements and understanding how water should get from point A to point B is is as much I want to say, and my, our scientists and engineers will probably disagree with me, it is as much of an art as it is a science. Mm. Because one day, you've got to make moves you may not always agree with, but from a perspective of the bigger picture, is it a water supply driven? Is it flood control driven? You got to make decisions sometimes the book doesn't have an answer to. And our water managers there are fabulous mm. and brilliant. And the modelers are brilliant. Um, it's just... It's it's loaded with talent, and I was so excited to sit in a in a meeting, many meetings, and not, and frankly, be the dumbest person in the room. Hmm. And I, I'm others might say I wasn't, but I certainly felt that way. But you talk about driving you, yeah, sink or swim. Yeah, and I think that's one of the worst things that I recognized in in professionals was. They're smart, they're talented, and then you don't admit when you don't know something and you get so far down the road that you've created a mess. And so I think the example that, that you're giving of yourself is what somebody out there, if you're listening, ought to strive for, which is like, know what you don't know. Yes. And then go fix that. And then tell somebody. Tell somebody who, who is smarter than you yeah. on that thing and let them help you go fix that, that gap that you're missing. Yeah. How long do you spend at the district? Three years, three, three and a half years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, because I know I've kept you a long time. I want to transition from the district, you know, back into the private sector where you are now with Res, mm-hmm. which is great. Talk about that transition. Talk about your motivations in making that move and how you've, how you've inserted yourself, how you've melded who you are and how you operate into how oh, you yeah. work now. Yeah, I, I would say my motivation was highly driven by an administration change. Administration changes bring lots of changes at, at different levels. Uh, and so I was one of those lucky ones. And but you know, it was a it was a great learning experience to have to go through that. It was something that deep down at your core you go, Whoa, you know, check yourself. Yeah. And what do I need to do next? Right? It's always been this what what's what what do i need to change and i i took a step and i and i took a a, a quiet period for myself mm-hmm. and i said okay well who is ansley what does ansley want to be right cuz this that was my dream <laughs> job it really was and and i think you've probably heard that from other people too that that place it's a dream job the and i said you know i'm going to get back in the private sector and i want to really just get rooted again, right? Get rooted in being an engineer, right? Mm. So I started. It's where I wanted to go to. I got this weird diversion that was fabulous. I had a, and I'm going to throw his name out here. He probably, I don't know if he'll appreciate this or not, but Brent Whitfield uh, called me one day and he said, let's go to lunch. And I said, okay. And he said, we're going to lay out everything out there. We're just going to talk about it. I said, okay, 
that sounds good. And Brent was kind enough to go, this firm does this. This firm does that. This firm does this. He's like, you know it from your perspective. You know it from water management world. But I want to show it to you from a different perspective. And he was just kind. He was kind. Nice. I had a few offers on the table. And I and I really thought hard about what did I want out of that next move? And I wanted a place where I could still grow, right? Not necessarily from a career ladder position, but technically get back to those roots, right? And I chose a place that most people did not expect I would choose. (laughs) And it was North Star Contracting Group. And really, North Star, that's not, you know, we thought you'd go to one of the big guys. I said, no, you know, I like the fact that North Star's small and you can have this, personal learning growing teaming everybody did everything right Mm -hmm. we didn't have enough people to have all of these backups and all of these extras everybody did everything and i and many people will tell you in their private sector world oh i don't like that but there's a handful of us that thrive in that because it's the ultimate team you don't get anything done without each other and I and I thrive in that. And so it was a, it was a fantastic, fantastic job. Brent Anderson, who runs that show, uh, did a fantastic job keeping that group mm. in motion. And you know, I helped move some of their South Florida work forward. We did a little bit of work for Dax at the time, and it was it was really really rewarding because I was still doing that South Florida stuff. Yeah, and I was and I was actually, you know, using everything that I had studied and learned and figured out in a slightly different format. And it was just yet another way of expanding, I'll, I'll say my practice, right? Yeah. It was fantastic. And so now I'm I'm with Res. And, you know, while I was at the district, I ran the public-private partnership program. And I thought that program was a, a gem, a diamond in the rough, a a jump starter for so much of what we are trying to accomplish here in this state in terms of water, environmental conditions, environmental issues, natural resources. There's so, we have so much land in this state. We have so many people who want to do all the right things and want to partner and who are stepping up and saying, let me help. How do I do it? How do I partner with you? And it was wonderful to be able to coordinate and work with those people and help develop projects and those partnership ways that it didn't all have to be state land. It didn't all have to be government land. Right. It could be John Doe's land. And and John Doe was ready to take part. He just didn't know how, yeah. right? And so it was wonderful to be able to help folks figure out how do you do this? What is it I need to understand? And what are the pros and cons if I do this? Oh, by the way, right? And helping to develop some of the path forward to make that happen. That was probably one of the most rewarding parts of that job. And at Res, I'm able to effectively do that. And we are putting really unique strategies together, working with landowners, working with governmental entities to solve big problems using the tools that have been at our disposal for what 10 years now yeah that really haven't been exercised in this market hardly at all and it's one of those weird things about it is a lot of times we get 
I don't want to call it sclerotic, but it, but at least a little bit slow in how we move things forward in the sense of of solving big problems yeah. and and you get you get into the habit of this is how you do it and this is the step and then there's the next step and then there's the three steps back and then there's the step forward uh, and then there's the pause and then there's the mm-hmm. step you know you've seen big giant projects and now you're the the company you're with is that is their mm-hmm. wheelhouse is mm-hmm. big giant water quality restoration ecosystem restoration projects but you're given like this latitude and i just know because i'm around you it's like the latitude to think through things and come up with big giant ideas yeah on to effectuate it given the bounds of what's been created for you and that's the weird part for me is like is seeing like this is not new the idea of the public-private partnerships and and these things that's what you're looking at Mm -hmm. you know and building and it's not it's it's not new statutorily. It's no. not new universally, but somehow we treat it like it's new, right? Absolutely. And it, it's it's surprising sometimes when you learn entities that had no idea they could do this. Yeah. And and so it's been a bit of an education for folks and we're, you know, it's it's exciting to me to see those who go, "Wow, we can do that." Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can. But it's also exciting to see folks realize that they can make things happen faster, yeah. sometimes more cost effectively, and not have to feel the burden of having to figure out some of these really challenging projects, right? Yeah. You know, when when you're surrounded by folks who live in our world, our water market world, we all get all these little concepts and unique ways to put really engineering and science together, right, to move things forward. We understand the mandates. We understand the policy. We understand what's got to happen. But when you walk into an office or a small government, and they don't have that staff, right? right? They're really relying on their partners, whether it's government or uh, the private sector, to, to help them. And they know they, they need to do these things. They know they want to do these things. Sometimes they just need, you know, some a partner who will hold their hand and take that risk with them because it's it is a big step for some of these entities to to make some of these moves. It's a big commitment. Yeah. You got a great finance director, right? Mm-hmm. You got a great public works guy, but you have no reason to have uh, an Ansley on staff. Right. Right? You just don't. Sure. So you but, need one. but now it's like they're they're in a position of especially a quickly changing regulatory environment in mm-hmm. Florida especially. And I'll obviously we'll stick here for our purposes is a lot of folks have found themselves playing catch up. And I Mm -hmm. think in the past in, and I consider myself included in that Mm -hmm. long list of people who look at something and say, okay, here's the problem that's been identified. Here's what's supposed to happen ostensibly. It's like, okay, well, let's start to do the, the fixing and, and to shift the way you think about something philosophically from Government has all the answers. You move always at the pace of government to something different, which is there are people who are more nimble mm-hmm. than we are mm-hmm. that are more, their job is to be more creative. And then also the shifting of the risk involved. Yeah. People in government are not rewarded mm-hmm. for risking Taking. something and it not panning out that's, that's right. how that's how folks that spend a you know a career you know, getting good at something get fired that's right and so having somebody else out there who can assume that risk mm-hmm. and making something work and showing that it works in the end 
I think is a, I mean, it's enormous in, in my mind. It's why mm-hmm. I like you guys, obviously. Yeah. Do you feel like that corner is turning somewhat these days? I do. I still think there's a lot of education yeah. to be had. I think there's still a lot of understanding on the procurement end of things that alternative delivery structures altogether, public-private partnership, design-build, CMARG, you name it, are real, right? They There's a lot of some, I, I don't want to say it's all myth because there's some bad actors that exist in 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 all sectors, right? And there's sometimes, you know, one bad experience by one entity and you've got a, a, you know, a a sample of only five examples to look at will, will taint the entire process. And you overcoming that is starting to get better, but there's still the myth that the private sector is going to take you for a ride. And the reality is, you know, there's too many checks and balances in the system, frankly, yeah. for that to happen. And I will be completely frank with you that the scenarios that I've seen where those bad situations have occurred quite often is when the process has been deviated from by both parties. Uh, and not because in in an intentional, erroneous way uh, or a malicious way, it's just adjusting to new processes is hard for a lot of people. Yeah. And uh, you always want to go back to the comfort zone. And that's the contract you know, the process you know, and not always are they great fits for an alternative delivery model sometimes. Yeah. And, and I see it because I'm with you a lot. I hear you talk through projects a lot mm-hmm. from these grand scales. It is part of what motivates you is is turning that corner to something that makes more sense in your mind as the mm-hmm. as an engineer who's constantly trying to figure out how to solve problems. It's like you got the right answer. You're raising your hand in class. You got it. Mm-hmm. And and if everyone just kind of we all sort through this together to understand, then we can go and and fix these big giant mm-hmm. hairy problems. Mm-hmm. I said there's no reason not to have all the tools available to you. Uh, don't limit yourself. Uh, yes, and I think if we can, as a collective market of, of of really intelligent people, which we are surrounded by in the water market, there is no reason that can't work for all parts of the market. So, you know, into the I'll say in the design, bid, build, land, uh, you know, the the consultants make their money consulting and the contractors make their money building. Uh, the vendors who do maintenance make their money maintaining. And I think it's really easy to say an alternative delivery solution sometimes doesn't seem to fit my, bus- my business model if yeah. I'm one of those. But in reality, it is exactly your business model just combined with more, yeah. right? And they can be partners and they can be very, very... Uh, I'll say successful collectively, and there's no reason that they too can't partner. What professional accomplishment out of many mm-hmm. are you the most proud of? Um, I don't want to say it's one thing, right? I want to say it's a it's a conglomeration of of my my very very weird and windy path to where I am. Uh, and I and someone described it the other day as I wear a coat of many colors in my career. <laughs> And they're absolutely right. And what I'm actually quite proud of is has been my ability to patch all of those quilt pieces together to make the coat that I do wear. And I've done so in a way in honoring in honoring from a, a, a service standpoint. I 
there is a uh, core value, a series of core values that the Air Force carries, and it's integrity first, service before self, and excellence in all you do. I live it. I believe it. I breathe it. And if it's if I'm not doing that, I'm not doing me, right? And I think my coat of many colors is the progression of that. Yeah, that's obvious. Are you optimistic about the future of the environment in Florida, and why? I am. I'm very optimistic about it. So I get to travel around the country and develop projects and talk to different states and their leaderships about how to do some of these big regional projects. And I am hands down so excited to be a resident of the state of Florida for the mere fact and many others. But primarily, I have seen firsthand that we are so far ahead of the rest of the country, both programmatically and figuring out what we need to do but also how we're going to start implementing some of these practices. I, and, and, and one of the things that I always refer back to is Frank Bernardino, when he does a lot of presentations on, I'll call it the state of, of water, and the state of Florida, is he talks about the comparison of our spending as a state on water issues and infrastructure compared to transportation. And it's always shocking to folks that transportation has about 11 to 12% of the budget, and water only has about less than one. That's getting better. But the reality is, and he says it the best, that you know you put your money on the things you value and you spend your time doing the things you value. And, I, and I'm grateful for the fact that Florida is starting to do more of that and putting our money where, our, where certainly many voices are. But I think we got to do more. But I think we're on the right path to start doing that. What, if anything, keeps you up at night regarding Florida's environment? Honestly, it's the adjustment to how do I, how do we, how do lots of people communicate alternative measures to get things done? How how innovative are we willing to be? We talk about innovation. We're spending a little bit on innovation. What does innovation really need to be? Should it be in Florida? And not creating solutions or I'll say not preventing innovation for the future that we haven't talked about yet. We don't know yet by making decisions in policy and practice today, not, not creating problems for ourselves in the future. Yeah. What advice do you give young people who are starting careers, thinking about careers in Mm -hmm. the environmental sphere, whether it be public or private sector, Mm -hmm. what advice do you give them about how to do what you do? This comes, I think, straight from my own experiences is that do your own research, study, 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 not just the books they tell you to read, right? Dig, find the scientific papers that talk about this, find the conflicting scientific papers and come up with your own analysis of why one is better than the other or not. Don't just ask the question and have someone tell you, right? (laughs) Do your homework and it is going to take you way further than just listening to the lecture. Yeah, makes sense. Ansley Tilly, thanks so much for being on the show. This is awesome. Yes, thank you very much. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to Water for Fighting. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use, and don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review. You can follow the show on LinkedIn and Instagram at FLWaterPod, and you can reach me directly at FLWaterPod at gmail.com with your comments and suggestions on who and or what you'd want to know more about. Production of this podcast is by Lonely Fox Studios. Thanks to Carl Sorn for making the best of what he had to work with and to David Barfield 
for the amazing graphics and technical assistance. A very special thank you goes out to Bo Spring from the Bo Spring Band for giving permission to use his music for this podcast. The song is called Doing Work for Free, and you should check out the band live or wherever the best music is sold. Join me next time for another amazing conversation with someone who has helped shape water and environmental policy in the Sunshine State. Till then, keep your whiskey close and your water closer. Mm-hmm.